This is Space 101.1 FM, KMGP LP FM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Hi, Felix Bonnell here with Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. We're here live for the next hour. We're the only radio program that looks at history, news, and stories of the Pacific Northwest. We've got a lot of great guests that we'll get to in just a moment. I want to give you a heads up. We're doing a really special program next Sunday night. That's on December 4th, 8 p.m. We'll be live as we always are live, but you can come in person and see us live from the Burgermaster at University Village in Seattle. It's a classic place. I have a lot of great memories of the Burgermaster at University Village in Seattle. So we're going to do a special show there. It's next week. Come in person. Come and watch. You can eat your hamburger and your shake. And they even have a salad bar at that particular Burgermaster. But what a great place to do a live show. It's just a few miles down the road from where we are here at Space 101.1 FM's World Headquarters in the old Sergeant at Arms office in the gatehouse at historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station, nowadays better known as Magnuson Park. But um, it should be a special show. I, I, you know, I'm, I'll be surprised to see how many people actually show up. I'm going to be there. I'll have a few special guests who will be joining me. I'll have some people with me helping out, uh, kind of getting things done and kind of keeping, keeping order and keeping the little technical aspects working for a live remote broadcast like that. But it's the perfect spot to get together in person for our first live remote broadcast and maybe our last live remote broadcast ever of Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. Now, okay, coming up on the big show tonight, we've got uh, Ted Van Dyke. He's a Bellingham native. He's a journalist, a longtime political guy. We could spend the whole hour reviewing his incredible career going back to the early 1960s. But he's going to join us in just a few minutes. We're going to talk about a, a sports hall of fame project at his alma mater, Bellingham High School up in Whatcom County. Um, and then uh, in the second half of the show, we're going to talk to David Ellis Evans. He's the chief site designer of Expo 74 in Spokane. That's an incredible World's Fair. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary of it. If you've spent a lot of time in Spokane or looked at anything about the history of that fair, it's similar to the 1962 Seattle World's Fair in terms of how it transformed the city, but it's a little different means of transformation, a little different set of goals, and a fair that was, you know, 12 years newer than that 1962 fair. But we'll talk to David Ellis Evans, an architect and chief site designer of Expo 74. And then uh, in the middle of the show, we're going to talk to our roving correspondent, Ken Zick, He's out and about in one of Seattle's most iconic holiday displays. And I couldn't figure out if that iconic holiday display is happening this year or if it's up and running. So I thought, well, what can I do? We'll send out our live roving history correspondent, Ken Zick, and we'll be uh, getting in touch with him at some point in the show to uh, check in and see what he's found out about the, uh, the very iconic holiday uh, display here in Seattle. If you have any questions or show suggestions, we love to get email at Cascade of History at gmail.com. We're always looking to talk to interesting guests with interesting stories about history, archaeology, historic preservation, 
you name it. We define history very broadly. We want to talk to people in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia. We think of the old Oregon country as the, the ground that we till, looking for stories about interesting people from the past, interesting things people are doing now to celebrate history or preserve history or share it. So send those emails to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. We love being on Space 101.1 FM, community station, completely listener-supported. We also get some support from the City of Seattle, Office of Arts and Culture, and For Culture. If you feel like donating, you can go to our website at space101fm.org. There's all kinds of great information there. That's where our live stream is as well, in case you're listening from outside our broadcast area here in the Seattle and east side of Lake Washington from our historic headquarters at Sandpoint Naval Air Station, nowadays better known as Magnuson Park. All right, let's see if we can get uh, Ted Van Dyke on the line. Let's see if he's there. I'm going to put him on on air. Hello. Ted, can you hear me? I can. Thank uh, you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on Cascade of History. Um, as, as I mentioned, a brief introduction of you a moment ago, you have an incredible resume. You've been involved in some amazing work with journalism, public affairs, politics, going back to, I think, the JFK administration. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but you're a Bellingham. You grew up in Bellingham. Grew, born and grew up, yes. Right. And I'm, I'm retired here now. That, that must be great. What's it like coming back home to a place like Bellingham where you grew up uh, here many, many well, decades I've later? Enjoy, I've enjoyed it a great deal. I left in 1955 and... Uh, didn't come back uh, really until seven years ago when I retired here, and it's very pleasant. I mean, the town has changed a great deal. It's much larger, but the spirit of the place is about the same, and there are a lot of familiar people and, and uh, places, so it's a very comfortable retirement. What's changed the most about Bellingham from the time you were there, 60, what is that, 67 years ago? Yeah, well, well yeah, I was born 88 <laughs> years ago, believe me. <laughs> but no, I, uh, then it was, a, it was a, essentially a smokestack, blue-collar city. Uh, industrial, waterfront, uh, fishing, cannery, uh, boatyards, sawmills, one where my dad worked, uh, coal mine. Now mm-hmm. it's a city of education, uh, health care, and services. Uh, and the smokestacks are all gone. So it's a, it's a different kind of city entirely, but it's still highly uh, uh, environmental-oriented, uh, and good people. It's called uh, uh, the city of subdued excitement, we call it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. That's a new That's a new one for me. Yeah. I, I do like the downtown. I like the museum there. I like the um, the museum, the Spark Museum devoted to radio history and yes, to that, electrical that's history. that's very interesting. Yes, that's really, right. Really good. It sounds like a great place to retire. So I, I reached out to you on social media. We've been, you know, we're really close friends on Facebook, you and I. <laughs> Though we, sure. We've never met um, in person, anyway. And I was reading you. You you'd written some things about um, a high school sports hall of fame at your alma mater at Bellingham High School, and that I, that right. sounded intriguing to me. Um, and so, you're what's what's the Bellingham High School mascot? Uh, well, it, there is no mascot now. You, the, the team used to be the Red Raiders, but oh. uh, to be politically correct, it's it's now the Bayhawks. The Bayhawks, okay, okay. Yeah, but uh, there may be a new Bayhawk uh, 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 mascot, but I've not seen it yet. So I've not been to any sports events uh, for about a year or two. Okay. So if there is a, there, there's probably a Bayhawk walking around in some kind of costume. Okay. And now I, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time, or I don't have a lot extensive knowledge of what high schools do to honor their past athletes and that sort of thing. But 
Tell me about what they're doing at Bellingham High School in terms of this sports well, hall of fame. Once, once, once I got drafted into it, by the way, when I returned home because I'm the only guy old enough to remember uh, people from the 40s and 50s who uh, were competitive. <laughs> and, uh, and all the other members, by and large, tend to be ex-coaches or athletes or members of the Hall of Fame themselves, but from later years. And what happens is that there's a, uh, a committee which meets several times annually, uh, takes nominations. There are criteria. You have to have been a star in more than one sport. Uh, you have to have excelled in high school. Uh, many have gone on and excelled at college or in professional sports and so on. But that's not a necessity. It's what you did while in high school. And uh, so there are nominees who are inducted about uh, 12 or 13 per year. And the next ceremony is in January. I can't divulge those names yet to you, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> there will be 12 or 13 in the, in the crew. And there is an assembly. At the, there's a, uh, a public assembly at the school, and the uh, inducted members are honored and uh, film or photos are shown of their exploits and people talk on their behalf friends and family come it's a very nice thing and and uh, uh i i enjoy it a great deal and and uh, it's nice to see people from my own era uh admitted but i meet those from other later eras as well which is most now and uh among other things i see uh children or families of uh people i was in school with who were their kids or their grandkids, but who have succeeded them uh, in sports at the high school. And it's a very nice, it's a nice unifying thing. And there's always a very good crowd, too. I'm always a bit surprised that there's several hundred turnout each year. And do you know what the genesis of it was or how, how many years they've been doing this? Well, it's been, it's been going on. I was, uh, I got involved, I think, in what was its second year. It began, I believe, in 19, uh, in 2018 with an induction. And I, uh, had been up here only a year then, and then I for the next before the next year I was uh, drafted into the nominating committee. So it's been since 2018, once annually, and 12 or 13 people annually, both men and women uh, in sports are inducted. They have to have excelled in high school, and uh, some for some that was all. Others went on to professional sports or college stardom or something else. But the, it, it's a nice event. Now, I know you can't divulge any of the members of the class that will be announced and inducted next, early next year, but no. in, in those first couple classes, are there, are there people that someone who's casually a casual sports fan in the Puget Sound area might recognize? Oh, sure. Well, for instance, there are three big, big baseball players. Uh, uh, one was uh, Cliff Chambers, uh, the class of 39, <laughs> was a pitcher in the National League, threw a no-hitter. Wow. Another was uh, Clarence Marshall, who was a... Uh, uh, in the 40s, he pitched for the New York Yankees, uh, was in a World Series. Another, Roger Repose, who was uh, class of 58, who uh, played center field for the Yankees as a successor briefly to Mickey Mantle. Hmm. And uh, I worked for many years in the summer baseball, youth baseball program here in Bellingham. And uh, Roger was a little kid who whom I coached when uh, way back in time, and little did I know he was going to later play for the Yankees. So... Wow. So is Bellingham kind of a hothouse for baseball talent? It was at that time. Uh, growing up in, in my growing up years, which were, you know, born in the Depression and then World War II, uh, there was not much for kids to do except there was an extremely active and well-organized youth baseball program in the summer. And literally hundreds of people from age 9 through 17 participated in, in at four league levels. 
and we had hundreds of kids who were uh, in the in the program went on to play baseball at some level afterward but uh, we always had good high school teams as a result and and uh, others went on to college and a few into pro ball so uh, it's it's not the hotbed it once was because yeah. uh, although in minor league ball both Ken Griffey and Edgar Martinez got their starts in the minor leagues in Bellingham so is there still a minor league team playing in Bellingham no there's not oh, uh, that's too bad there is not uh, the Mariners moved their minor league uh, farm team to Everett uh, from Bellingham. and uh, But there's a very fast semi-collegiate league team that plays in the summer against mostly college players from the, from the Pacific Coast area who play for various uh, teams in Washington and Oregon. And they play uh, a good schedule, and, and many of those players go on to pro ball, none currently in the majors. But it's a good brand of baseball, though not professional baseball. And so was Bellingham winning a lot of state titles back in when you were a kid and when you were there at the high school? Uh, we won, yeah. There was there were there was no state baseball tournament then. There were there were uh, there was a state basketball tournament and and uh, unofficial state football champions. But we there huh. was a cross state league, which was Bellingham, Everett, uh, Bremerton, the Seattle Prep, Stadium, and Lincoln of Tacoma, which was kind of the biggest league in the state. And the, Bellingham won an awful lot of uh, titles in that in that uh, league, especially in baseball. But that was uh, there was no competition or tournament statewide. That's interesting. Yeah, because I have a friend of mine, a guy, an old Seattle Times guy named Bill Cosson. You ever run across Bill? I don't know. He was an editor there for a long time, but he did a lot of research on the Turkey Bowl, the game that sort of the I guess the unofficial state championship of, of football that was played on Thanksgiving Day back in the. I guess from the 40s until about the early 1970s, but but they had so they didn't. There wasn't an official baseball tournament. Why was there not an organized tournament back in the 40s? There just never was. I guess the state oh. coaches association never got around yeah. to it. There may be now. Yeah, I think there but, is. Yeah, huh. uh, there is just about everything. But there was no state. Remember, also we're talking about when I was in growing up, uh, depression years, and then World War II years, and nobody traveled anywhere in World War II. Yeah, uh, everybody's. Mobility was limited, so there were not many statewide events. There were regional events and leagues, but uh, there was a statewide track tournament. Bellingham won two of the three years I was in high school, uh, but uh, otherwise not. The state, the cross state league championship was about as as famous as you could get huh. at that time. Interesting, but but it was a different. It was a different era. Now, are you? Do you think you'll ever be nominated for the Bellingham High School? No, Sports no, 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 not at all. I was a very <laughs> indifferent athlete. At, uh, I was uh, I was sports chair of the school paper, and, and uh, I was senior athletic manager. I played intramurals, but uh, then I had my notable achievement around here is my senior year in high school. I wrote a, a column once every Saturday for the PI on high school sports north of Seattle. You'd... And that uh, gave me great notoriety, and they ran, a, ran my picture, high school picture, next to the column. And later when I returned to Seattle after uh, being a lot of places afterward, I wrote a column for the PI editorial page for seven years. <laughs> and when I returned, they said, we'll have to go to the photo studio and get a picture of you. I said, no, I said, you've got one on file, you can just use it. <laughs> That's pretty cool. You had a, a weekly column as a high school student? That must have been yeah, quite, did, that must yeah. have made your head was, huge. <laughs> well, the PI had a, uh, uh, there are about 10 people around the state, they drafted the uh, Somebody from the PI came to high school and found out that I was a school sports editor. So I was drafted to write the column for North of Seattle. There are various others from around the state. But the PI had a very 
successful statewide edition at that time every Saturday. Oh wow! And uh, there was a sports section in it, which each in which each of us was featured, and we summarized what had gone on on the week before, and our photos were with the copy. Wow! And uh, later, when I got to the University of Washington, some of my fellow undergrads were correspondents from the other regions, so I met met some of these uh, fellow student journalists uh, later on. Wow. Do you ever go back and read those old columns? No, I have no idea where they are. <laughs> they, you know, recently the, the Seattle Public Library put the PI archives up online. Everything, you know, it's keyword well, searchable. I didn't know that. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, see if we can track those down, see how they see how they stand up here. What is it, uh, 70, 71 years later? Wow. Could, could be. Well, i tell you one, <laughs> one funny, funny, funny anecdote regarding that. When I uh, finished writing my last column my senior year in high school, which is 1950-51, uh, the guy came up from the PI and thanked me for it. I said, well, I'm going to the university next fall. I said, how's chances for a part-time job in the sports department? <laughs> and I said, well, sure, that's great. I, 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 he said, that's great. I said, yeah, when you come down to go to school, come in and we'll make the arrangements to put you to work. So I went in. I went to the sports department on the second floor of the old PI building, and I asked for Royal Brougham as the sports editor. And he came out and said, what do you want, kid? <laughs> And I said, well, I said, I was, you know, I've been writing this column for you uh, on your Saturday statewide edition. I said, I was told I could work here part time now that I'm coming here to college. Yes, I don't know you, kid. Get lost. <laughs> <laughs> that, was a famous, that was a famous Royal Brougham. That's great. And that building, I, we just, we, a few weeks ago on this show, we talked about the PI Globe and how it's, yeah. uh, you know, it had just been installed, I think, about late 1948, so that building must have been a glistening, brand new, like, palace of journalism when you visited. Oh, yeah, it, it was, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard stories. It seems like the P.I. was the more, um, I don't know, what's the word, the more uh, cliche, kind of old-school, uh, ink-stained wretch kind of uh, institution well, compared yeah, to the it Times. Was, it was, uh, it was uh, less establishment. It was more populist than uh, yeah. uh, the, the staid uh, <laughs> Seattle Times, where I later worked for a time, by the way, at the Seattle Times in the sports department years later. Yeah, okay. But, uh, no, the P.I. was the people's paper. <laughs> <laughs> so um, just to talk a little bit about your about your career, because after you left the Northwest, you did all, all kinds of political stuff. You actually, were you, you were chief of staff for Vice President Humphrey? Yes, I was uh, for five, the five years he was there. Uh, wow. Well, a year, well it, a, a whole series of events. Uh, what I was from the P.I., uh, from the Times, when I was working there in the sports department, uh, in 1957, I had to do my military duty. As it turned out, I was sent to intelligence school in Baltimore to be an intelligence analyst. Wow. And uh, later on, 1961, where the Berlin crisis uh, took place, when the Berlin Wall went up, I was recalled to military duty at the Pentagon as a Soviet uh, specialist. Wow. Well, when that crisis ended, I worked for time for the what is now the European Union as an American. Uh, and then... Uh, Senator Humphrey had always been my favorite. He was the liberal civil rights leader and the and the furthest uh, left in our party, who was you know respectable, really the national leader of liberals in the Congress. Huh. And uh, so I went up and volunteered for his staff, and was hired and uh, stayed with him uh, from 1964 when he was nominated uh, all the way through his term of office through the end of '68. After that, I did a, n- a number of things. Wow. But but. Uh, those were rewarding years of the Great Society. You know, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, okay. Medicare, Medicaid, federal aid to education, the war on poverty, 
Of course, Vietnam soured it all, but uh, yeah. uh, those were dramatic times when we got a lot done. So a couple questions. Um, I, how did Humphrey and uh, President Johnson get along? Well, they uh, at the beginning, they got along well, and then uh, uh, Humphrey went off the reservation on Vietnam, and I was among those who helped him get off the reservation. And by the time they left, uh, they parted in 1960, I'm afraid to tell you that they were totally alienated over that issue, and yeah. Johnson was very uh, vengeful and but the, we got a dramatic and important things done uh, domestically. We can't forget that. But Vietnam was uh, uh, broke more than the Johnson-Humphrey relationship down. A lot of things in the country. And so when Johnson announces that he's not going to seek election in 1968, I think it was like in March of 68. When he, what did yeah, that, that's right. What, how did that affect you and your work and what you guys were trying to get done? Well, uh, Humphrey had to make an immediate decision whether he was going to be a candidate you know, for, for presidency. And he delayed for a while, and uh, there had been the M.L. King assassination. Uh, the country was torn over the war, and there were urban uh, disorders. And he delayed and delayed, and and finally I, you know, I pushed him. I said, you've got to make a decision on this, go, no go. <clears throat> and he said, well, frankly, he said, so many things have been happening that are bad in the society. If I run, I think I'll just be engulfed by them. I just, I, I don't feel right about doing it. And uh, so I urged him to run. He did run. Yeah. And he was engulfed by them. I mean, it was true. Uh, uh, Robert Kennedy was killed. Yeah. Uh, there were, you know, the, the riots at the Chicago Convention. It was it was a terrible year. We almost won as it was, almost defeating Nixon. I wish now that we had, but yeah. <laughs> at the time, at the time, it was uh, kind of merciful to have it end. But uh, those were five years that were I really value. They were they were I was very useful. I thought, and we got a lot of important things done, and a different kind of politics politics in the country than now, in an entirely different uh, context. Yeah, it's almost it's it feels sounds like a lot longer time ago than just a little over fifty years. Well, it sounds yeah, like a much in fact, longer time. I, last uh, last year I taught a, a, an extension course at Western Washington University here in Bellingham on the nineteen sixties, and uh, most of the students. Uh, talked about it, you know, as if it were ancient history, you know, like, the, <laughs> like the Crusades. <laughs> so I was I ended up answering questions about the Kennedy assassination and other, oh, man. you know, uh, the moonshot things, events that took place in that '60s decade, uh, rather than overall history. But it's it's still a very important decade in people's yeah. minds. And, and do you have a biography or a book that you've written about your experiences? Yeah, I wrote a book. It's, it's still around called Heroes, Hacks, and Fools. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's uh, by University of Washington Press in, in 2007. Okay. And I still sends, uh, I still get a few royalties annually, so I'm glad a few hundred dollars each. <laughs> I'll have to look for a year. Yeah, that, that, it's, that's it's, great. It's, it's, you can still get it, I think, through... Uh, Amazon or others, but it's it's technically out of print. But there, you can either get it through the press or through Amazon or other online sources. You might enjoy it. The title, of course, gives away what it's about. It's, it's the people <laughs> of a long era, heroes, hacks, and fools. Last kind of regional history question. I always hear that the the Twin Cities, Minnesota, there's a there's kind of a um, similarity between that part of the country and the Pacific Northwest in terms of the the liberal politics. Yeah, it's uh, much like it. It's a clean politics. It, came from, uh, you know, the, the Scandinavian countries. Yeah. Warren Magnuson, for instance, was, yeah. uh, for, was born there. 
a few years ago, interestingly, I, I, oh, one thing I did, I wrote a, I mentioned writing a PI column for seven years uh, from 2000 to 2007 on the editorial page. And I wrote a piece about Warren Magnuson in one of them. And I got a, a call from his birthplace in Minnesota, Moorhead, Minnesota, huh. which was having a Moore, Warren Magnuson historic week. So they they asked for suggestions of speakers and so on. I, I said <laughs> Walter Mondale would be one and others. But there was a whole movement across the upper Midwest, the progressive movement, which really landed in Washington State, whereas Oregon, by contrast, was settled by New Englanders and former Confederates. Yeah. Uh, had an entirely different history, where ours is, was a, kind of a straight-line progressive uh, left uh, oh, tradition. It's, it's still there. It's still here in the, in uh, western Washington, particularly. You can see the vestiges of it. It's not the old liberalism of, of the uh, of the, the docks and labor organizing. My dad was part of that. Wow. But it's it's uh, it's still a very liberal place, and it all has its roots back in the uh, upper Midwest and Scandinavia. Yeah, that, that Oregon, wait, the original Oregon Constitution excluded free blacks, as everybody knows. And um, I always wonder about the difference between Oregon incorporating, becoming a state, joining the Union in 1859. Yeah. And then you get 30 years until Washington joins the Union. That had to have some kind of effect on how we view the federal government, how we view federal resources, how it all well, plays that, out. That's, an, that's entirely true. One little story I'll tell you, and it's related to sports. I was going to... Uh, I was outside waiting outside Edmondson Pavilion to go to a Husky basketball game a few years ago, and next to me in the ticket line was an African-American guy, and we got to talking, and he had he was originally from the South, and he said he had lived for several years in, in uh, Oregon and then moved up to Seattle. He said he felt far more comfortable. I said, why is that? He said, Oregon's no place for a black man. Wow. That's, that's <laughs> that, even, these many years. And that's that, maybe, when was this? Ten years, yeah, ten see, years ago. That's amazing. And I should say, you know, Mag- Warren Magnuson, I'm at, where I'm broadcasting from tonight is Warren G. Magnuson Park, the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station. So. Oh, I remember that very well. Yeah. And I remember Magnuson well. And, of course, he was in the Senate uh, as a powerhouse all that time I was active in politics. Yeah. And he knew uh, knew I was from the state. and I, I had uh, contact with him now and then. But he always called me Van. I thought that was because he could never remember my name. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Ted Van Dyke, I'd love to have you back on the show sometime and talk more sure. about those ancient history of the 1960s. <laughs> yeah, you bet. And the, the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages. Um, but it's wonderful having you on the show. And thanks for being on Cascade of History. And we'll keep our eyes peeled for that sure, announcement really, of the I, class. I, I enjoy I enjoy what you do on Facebook and what you're doing for, for our regional history. Thank, thanks for doing it. Thanks for saying. Have a good night. Nice talking to you, Ted. Good night. You, you bet. That's Ted Van Dyke joining us live from Whatcom County, talking about the Bellingham High School Sports Hall of Fame and his incredible, fascinating career. We definitely will have him back, that's for sure. Um, All right, well, speaking of the Midwest, (laughs) that's a nice transition. Um, I want to play uh, another Stan Borson holiday song because, as I pointed out last week on the show, Stan had a huge condo just down the street from the studio here. I, if Stan still lived there, I could get in my car and drive there, be there in 30 seconds from where I'm broadcasting tonight. And he, his popular uh, Scandinavian parody songs and albums were very popular in the Midwest. I've seen ads for them in, in Twin Cities newspapers and things. He had, he had a big following. He appeared a few times on Prairie Home Companion over the years. Anyway, he put out this incredible Christmas record in 1970 called Just Go Nuts at Christmas. We're going to hear a song that's uh, his parody version of Up on the Housetop. And then a little bit later on, I have uh, some excerpts from an interview I did with Stan at his office probably 20 years ago explaining his connection to 
the artist who he was mentored by, a guy named Yogi Jorgensen, and that's not his real name, but he was doing the Scandinavian parody songs um, before Stan did them, and Stan sort of kind of inherited the mantle. And I'll let Stan tell the story a little bit later on. But first, uh, and after this song, you're not going to want to go anywhere because we're going to be joined by our roving correspondent, Ken Zick. He's out at a classic Northwest holiday iconic location to give us an update on what's going on out there. But uh, let's uh, have Stan Borson take it away here on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. I got a nice red suit because I think I'll impersonate Santa Claus. Wearing the Santa Claus disguise will give my kids a big surprise. To climb on the roof will be simple trick. I'll come down the chimney like old Saint Nick. Kids will be waiting at the fireplace to see old Santa Claus smiling face. Oh, 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 don't ever go. Up on the rooftop, please don't go. Average roof is much too slick. You're going up fast, but you come down quick. I climbed up the ladder and I got on the roof. I'm a simple-minded goof. It's very dark and I can't see. I walk into the aerial of the TV. I grabbed on the aerial before I know. I knocked it loose and away we go. I slip and slide and then I fell. I land on my head and hear the Christmas bell. Oh, 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 don't ever go. Up on the rooftop, please don't go. Average roof is much too slick. You're going up fast, but you're coming down quick. I fall on the fence and I knock down the gate The kids run outside to investigate I'm so unconscious from fall on head The kids think Santa Claus is dead Next day my kids look mad with the frown The TV aerial has been knocked down Sesame Street they cannot see It's a lousy Christmas without the TV Oh, ho, ho, don't you ever go Up on the roof Please don't go. Average roof is much too slick. You go up fast, but you're coming down quick. Stan Borison, the great legendary Stan Borison here on Space 101.1 FM on this week's live broadcast of Cascade of History, the only live radio program all about stories, news, all sorts of things around history in the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, British Columbia. We cover it all. We cover it all live. Boy, Ted Van Dykstra was a great guest. That was fun having him on, talking about the Bellingham Sports Hall of Fame and his incredible political career. Um, okay, it's the holiday season. Thanksgiving was a few days ago. I hope you had a wonderful holiday. Um, we were over in Spokane. We drove back before the big storm last night. Um, and as I was driving, I was thinking, okay, where do I like to go uh, when it's Christmas time? I'm cheap. Where are free things I can do? Well, one thing you can do next Sunday night at 8 o'clock is to come to Burgermaster in University Village for our live remote broadcast of Cascade of History, our first and perhaps only and our last live remote broadcast of the show. So put that on your calendar now. That's a free activity. But then I was thinking about Candy Cane Lane, that wonderful holiday drive through light park that uh, has been a fixture around here for decades and decades and decades. So I thought, you know, I don't have time to even look up online what's going on. I'm going to send out our roving correspondent, Ken Zick, out there. And Ken, can you hear me? Are you there? Hang on a second. 
Ken, can you hear me? Are you there? I can hear you. Oh, wonderful. Our roving correspondent, Ken Zick, he's out in the field. Uh, I didn't. I, didn't <laughs> I have to play your sounder. Hang on a second. Let's see if I, <laughs> let's, 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 we have to have this. It doesn't really apply tonight, but it's sort <laughs> of, uh, I think we have to play it. So here, just... Uh... Building, is you ready? Because we're going to tear you down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, we have, we, we have, I, it says here I have to play that, so I can't, I can't not play that. I, I feel ready now. Thank okay, you so good. Much. I appreciate it. So Candy Cane Lane. So what's it? Must be it? Must be packed. There must be. I mean, I can't hear any ambient sound. That, but <laughs> it, it it must be packed with with holiday revelers driving up and down whatever that street is in the Ravenna neighborhood of Seattle, visiting Candy Cane Lane. So so you'd think that, and um, and, and Candy Cane Lane for folks who don't know or haven't been around Seattle for a while, it's a uh, uh, park in Ravenna Avenue up in the Ravenna neighborhood has been uh, uh, celebrating the holiday season since 1949. Wow. Um, coordinating a, a pretty extensive light display amongst all the neighbors. And they do their themes, and it kind of and they uh, emphasize peace in multiple languages around the world. It's, it's a great display, and it doesn't start until next weekend. Oh, <laughs> well, wait. It, but I thought Christmas officially started at midnight on Thursday <laughs> when Thanksgiving ended, and that Candy Cane Lane would have automatically fired up. Just sprung to life. No. <clears throat> No, so that. So wait, 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 uh, wait! How many other disappointed people are there tonight, along with me, remotely like this? So, uh, so well, I, so I wouldn't say I'm disappointed. I actually had a <laughs> wonderful. There's no, there's no crowds. I can see that. <laughs> sort of, I, it's actually it's cool because you can see there's the, the beginnings of the light shows. Some of the neighbors have put stuff up, and there's people who have things that are ready to go. And so you can kind of see the bones oh, of Candy wow. Lane coming together, which is pretty cool. So it's kind of behind the scenes, like a kind of a like exactly. a, the making of Candy Cane Lane documentary that you're putting together it, tonight. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. And, and it's. And it's cool because as I was walking around, like it's um, it's been a neighborhood tradition since I guess 1949. Wow! And and depending upon the source you look at, um, originally it was part. There's I think a Seattle Times Christmas uh, neighborhood contest, and uh, this this lane was actually built. Most of the houses were built back in the 20s um, from uh, uh, input from university. I believe the University School of Architecture to uh, emulate a uh, an English uh, English lane. And so they're all little brick 1920s Tudors. It's a cute little neighborhood. And then, you know, with the added Christmas lights, just makes it, makes it all the more special. That's neat. Now, is there any, um, any clue as to what the theme's going to be? Any, any, uh, apart from those exhibits that you're seeing people carefully constructing and laboring over for hours, is there anything that's going to tip off what the theme might be this year? So, so, I've, definitely, so I've, definitely seen, um, I've definitely seen a few placards in a few different languages. That um, that I believe are all variations on uh, peace, uh, peace and peace around the world. So okay. it seems like there's it seems like there's like an international peace, uh, overarching theme uh, shaping up as far as I can tell. And I love it because it's free. I think they often have some kind of a food bank collection thing. They're collecting donations for food and that sort of thing. And we'll figure that stuff out and we'll add that to the Cascade of History Facebook page. But does, does it does it open? Is it this coming Friday that it opens or this Saturday? Do we know the specific date yet? So, so it's a, so they have a they have a very small sign which I, I'll actually I'll actually post some pictures that I took tonight but that okay. sign says it actually opens on on twelve three so oh so, it'll be, so that's yeah. Saturday okay so, so, so perfect yeah, okay. That's Saturday so what I'm hoping people will do is they'll they'll combine a visit to Candy Cane Lane then they'll drive perfect. down the hill to come to the Burgermaster where we're doing our live show next Sunday night live in person remote where people can come and watch the show hundreds of people will show up to watch you know people talking on the phone about Northwest history. <laughs> That sounds that sounds fantastic. <laughs> I, hope, I, I hope they I hope they dress as their favorite Seattle historical character. 
Wow, that's that. Okay, now you're making it difficult. Now you're raising the bar. I want people to be to feel like it's easier to attend. It's not more difficult. Uh, but that, be, that's I, a good idea. We'll we'll have to think. We'll have to talk about that in a production meeting. If that's just, that's if we word. actually do we I, we don't actually have production meetings, but we'll we'll talk about it at, at some of that. So, all right. Well, okay. I'm glad you've given us the information here. I'm glad people are not, people are probably, maybe some people are in their cars now turning around and driving home now that since they know now that Candy Cane Lane isn't operating yet. So for, so for folks, so for folks who do want to come next week, it actually actually runs, it'll run through the, or excuse me, in years past, it's run through the whole month of December. Um, It's usually more crowded, obviously, on the weekends or as you get closer to Christmas. Um, Folks can drive through, although the traffic does get back and backed up and there's a few nights a week where they actually do pedestrians only oh and and they and they do the they do the event as a as a fundraiser for the university food bank so there'll be bins out you can bring canned food down you know help out some people in need um that's great and and it's a, and, and that's a great thing great thing for kids and it's not too long like you can, you can show up and you know if it's cold or snowy out <laughs> you, you, you get through the lane see it, you're back in your car warm you know 50 minutes stop. It's, that's it's pretty perfect fun. okay yeah. good all right well Ken Zick, our roving correspondent, thank you so much for kind of running down the, the rumors about Candy Cane Lane and getting it straight that it opens to the public. All the colored lights, the peace on earth, all the music, all the cardboard, the plywood cutouts next Saturday, December 3rd, 2022. And we'll put information with the address and everything at the Cascade of History Facebook page, which if you haven't liked yet or followed or joined or whatever you do to that kind of thing, I, people should do that to get the most up-to-date information. So, all right, Ken, have a good night, and we'll talk to you. We'll see you next week at the big show at, at Burgermaster, okay? Sounds, sounds good. Getting my, con- getting my costume ready right now. <laughs> who, who, are you gonna, who are you coming as? Oh, it's a surprise. I can't even tell you. <laughs> you'll have to come down and see. All right. Thanks a lot, Ken. Good night. Good idea. Our roving correspondent, Ken Zick, always wonderful to have him out there in the field giving us the latest news on history and history happenings within a certain mile radius of the radio station. I know we cover Idaho and Washington and Oregon and British Columbia. We can't expect Ken to drive to places in those parts of the of the region. So we're always going to lean kind of local on the Ken reports. It's just, just a spoiler alert going forward. All right, well, coming up, we're going to be joined by David Ellis Evans, who was the um, architect and site planner for Expo 74, the big World's Fair in Spokane almost 50 years ago. Before we do that, I have this little... Uh, snippet of an interview I did with Stan Borson. I think it was in 2000 or 2002. I honestly don't remember the year. And um, was sat at his office there over on Boat Street. And I asked him about Yogi Jorgensen, who was the performer who predated Stan in his career and Stan, who tutored Stan, mentored Stan in this whole uh, Scandinavian parody music field. Not a big field. There was only room for a couple of people. And um, Stan tells sort of a uh, kind of a sad story about Yogi Jorgensen. So here he is. This is Stan Borson on Cascade of History. Well, Yogi Jorgensen, his name was really Harry Stewart, and he grew grew up in Tacoma. And he was adopted by this family named Stewart, although he was Swedish himself. I can't remember. But anyway, uh, he didn't take on that uh, Yogi Jorgensen business till he left Tacoma and moved to California and uh, he joined Al Pierce and his gang. Now, Al Pierce and his gang was an old-time radio, one of the first old-time radio shows, sort of like Fred Allen, where uh, they had several different characters on this half-hour show. And they had a gal, a guy that imitated a, a, a woman cook and her name was Tizzy Lish. And she'd talk real high and come up with all these dumb recipes, you know. And then 
uh, they created a character for Harry, and his name name was uh, Yogi Orgeson. And he had a fishbowl upside down, and he would, as I gaze into my crystal ball, I can see my face on the other side. And then he'd take off on all kinds of dumb, crazy stuff like that, you know. But anyway, Yogi was performing in Las Vegas, and uh, he, his wife, Gretchen, said, now stay there tonight, don't start driving. And he said, no, he loved his home, and he wanted to get back to his house. And so he started driving. He went to sleep at the wheel. And uh, any other place, if he'd have gone off the road, you know, you just go out into the desert. But he went to sleep on an overpass, and the car flipped and lit upside down, killed him. And uh, she swears, though, that for about three or four days, he was in the house. She could hear him in other rooms in the house, and it was really eerie. Okay, I know that story took kind of a dark turn there, um, but it was one of those things where I remember being a little kid and hearing, knowing Stan Borson's holiday parody music from the Yusko Nuts at Christmas album from 1970 that we had in my family when I was a kid, and then occasionally hearing this weird different version of Yusko Nuts at Christmas, that one song, and eventually finding an old 45 or something that was you know Yogi Jorgensen and thinking, wait a minute, Stan Borson wasn't the first guy to do this? And... Stan explained to me that as a, he was a young performer in the in the late '40s when he was at <clears throat> excuse me he was at the University of Washington and doing a TV program on Channel Five and Yogi came to town and was they sort of they met and he sort of became a, a mentor and they got along really well and then when Yogi passed away Stan sort of carried a, carried on the baton and did tribute albums to Yogi and stayed in touch with uh, Yogi's widow and. Yogi's widow eventually married um, Jim Jordan, who played Fibber McGee on <laughs> Fibber McGee and Molly. So it's just a very small, strange world of bizarre entertainment from the 20th century. And, you know, any excuse to play Stan Borson stuff on Cascade of History. All right. Well, our next guest um, joining me, let's see. Are you, are you there? Hang on one second. Hi, David. Are you there? I am here. Oh, so nice of you to join us tonight. It's um, David Ellis Evans. He's the architect, and he was the chief site designer of Expo 74 in Spokane, that great World's Fair, a big World's Fair in not a very big city almost 50 years ago. Thanks for joining us tonight on Cascade of History. You're welcome. Good, good to be here. Yeah. Now, now for someone who's... I've, I've been spending time in Spokane for the last 15 or 20 years. I have uh, family who moved there back in their early 2000s, and I've walked through Riverfront Park. I'm, I was old enough to go to Expo, but I didn't, I didn't make it over there uh, 48 years ago. But what... It, it, that really transformed the city. I mean, that, that place where the river is visible now and there's this wonderful park. When you first came to Spokane, first of all, what year did you first come to Spokane and what did that area look like when you first saw it? Well, I first came to Spokane right out of college back in the late 60s. So at that time, um, there was a um, two large um, railroad structures and a trestle that uh, ran east and west through town that completely blocked the river off from from the city. And and that wasn't some intentional plan, like in the 19th century, to cover the river up. But there just wasn't the it wasn't an aesthetic thing, or nobody really thought that was as important as putting the railroad right through town. Well, I think it just sort of grew with the need at the time. Um, the railroads brought in. Um, Goods and workers um, from from the east, 
And that, that was an important part of the founding and development of Spokane. Yeah. And I think for a long time they were that that whole development was seemed more important than the river. Yeah. And and eventually then um with with um air travel and the um the role of the railroad uh, diminished some and and that that the the buildings there and that service that was offered was um really not not necessary in that location anymore and then the idea was that if if we could re- remove the railroad uh, all the railroad trackage and the bridges and so forth that led through there we could open up the river and um the river was um really the mag- mag- magnificent um feature of the city that had been really just barricaded for years. Yeah, it's crazy. I remember, you know, we tore down the Alaska Way Viaduct. Here I say we. I mean, the Alaska Way Viaduct was torn down <laughs> here recently, you know, in, yep. within the last several years, four or five years, three or four years now. But I remember and looking at old newspaper clippings, there were people as early as the early 1970s, mid-1970s were saying, let's get rid of the viaduct because it yeah. blocks the waterfront. So, But it took about 30, almost 40 years for that to come to fruition. Do you know, right. were, were there people who were looking at the river in Spokane long before Expo 74 was a gleam in anyone's eye saying, hey, you know, yep. we might want to restore the river? Was it, so does, does that idea go back a ways? Yes. Um, actually, there was a, a riverfront, uh, a river study that um, studied the river um, east and west of the Expo site. And part of the um, its intent was to to clean up the river and target the areas that were um, where uh, pollution was being generated. So it it was it didn't just happen overnight. But that's a very good point that 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 Expo actually was preceded by lots of people that did. Uh, good work on trying to clean up the river. That's pretty cool. Now, how did you first get involved? How did, how did someone first say, hey, there's this, there's this World's Fair. Do you want to come help be the chief site designer? <laughs> 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 well, I, I think that I was just in the right place at the right time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and do you, do you remember the very first meeting? Did it seem like kind of like pie in the sky for little old Spokane to hold a World's Fair? Um. Not really. Um, I think that that early on, the um, King Cole, who was the um, sort of practical visionary behind the the idea, um, had such um, such faith and optimism in it that he kind of carried everybody along, including me. <laughs> the thing that's, that's, that's difficult from a designer standpoint in doing a World's Fair. Now you're people that did yours will probably tell you the same thing, that it's unlike any other problem that, that an architect has in that there, there really is, is no problem. You know, <laughs> you see what I mean? <laughs> We're trained to solve these problems, but then when in a world's fair, there's no problem to get a hold of. Right? <laughs> <laughs> in answering questions, 
the questions like, well, who's coming? Well, nobody knows who's coming. Well, how, <laughs> you know, how much space do they need? Well, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just um, you, you end up creating a problem to solve, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. That, that's, uh, that's, that's what architects, that's what architects are trained to do that. <laughs> yeah. We call that strategic planning, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, there, there were hurdles along the way, right? It wasn't as if the money came flowing in and everyone agreed as to what the place was going to look like, and the railroad didn't just say automatically overnight, hey, right. we'll, we'll move all our tracks out of the way. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, um, the first hurdle was that the bond issue that we floated uh, to fund this um, passed, but not by the, a sufficient amount. So we thought that was going to be the end. Um, and there were um, there was a, there was a meeting of all of us that worked on it, and and they essentially told us that that, that was the end. And there were a few of us that just refused to accept that and ended up putting on a, a festival in down, downtown Spokane to kind of try to keep it alive. And, and the business leaders and, and uh, um, politicians all got together and, and uh, imposed an unpopular but um, uh, a, a tax that was uh, accepted by even people that were burdened unfairly by it. Hmm. So it, it had a um, it it had a bumpy beginning, but um, I think maybe just the good spirit of, of of it all kind of held it together during during those kind of rough times at the beginning. And the you know the 1962 fair here in Seattle was Century 21, and it was all about the future and Space Needle and the monorail remain. And there's lots of you know the the, the old um, Coliseum was recently remodeled as Climate Pledge Arena. It's still very futuristic. It's still very woven throughout the city, and people like me obsess about it and talk about it all the time. And you know we just marked the 60th anniversary of of the 1962 fair here. We did a big TV show here a couple months ago, and I've done several radio stories, but. Um, what was the theme of the Spokane Fair, and how did it come about? Well, the theme, well, I should say one thing that was different between your World's Fair and ours was that the intent with Seattle's was to um, look to the future and, and create um, structures that would remain after the fair, including the monorail and so forth. Ours was just the opposite of that. We wanted all the buildings to go away hmm. and have a residual, um, have a residual park. So a, a park rather than a civic campus was what the Seattle Center was envisioned as. Right. Huh. And then, hope, go ahead. No, go ahead. Your hope? Well, our hope was that... Um, that um, our theme, unlike well, unlike yours with the Space Needle and so forth, um, we were fishing for what 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 would be a reasonable theme, and we thought at one time we would do a structure, you know, of some kind like like the Space Needle, but maybe different. I worked on it. Uh, thankfully, it never developed. <laughs> what What did your Space Needle look like? 
you know, it was a, it was a, um, sort of like a, um, if you would imagine a, a, a footstool. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was that bad. Um, <laughs> no, it sounds it, wonderful. <laughs> I love <yeah>. it. <laughs> All around the perimeter of the footstool, so to speak, it's made of water. Okay. And and so you would see this this cascade of water, and then of course um, we thought. Why are we building a cascade of water? <laughs> you can't one feet away. So, there's a there's a fair amount of groping that that exists uh, at the beginning. It, wow. You know, you look you look back at the things that you considered at one time, and thankfully, um, we managed to discard all of those. Wow. So, I'm pretty happy with the way way it, it generated i i think that um the the exhibitors uh particularly the international um exhibitors australia canada germany iran japan china korea philippines um the soviet um republic um and the united states um all seem to really like the idea that this bear was unlike anything they'd seen. There was where the site, the natural aspect of the site, was the theme. And the, the Canadians immediately endorsed that and uh, offered um, to do anything that they could to, to, to uh, support that. And and so did many of the other countries. So that turned out to be that turned out to be um, a good choice for us. And, and what was the actual tagline, or the the slogan, or the the themes expressed as a tagline? What well, was creating a fresh new environment okay. was the basic theme. Over the U.S. pavilion, there was the quote from Chief Seattle about the man is. The earth is not made for man. Man is made for the earth. Something, something close. To oh that. yeah, the earth does not. The man does. The earth does not belong to man. Man belongs to the earth. That's it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And so you could see the the importance of uh, the, um, the the Native American influence on that. You know, the Native Americans had that that site for like uh, ten thousand years. So yeah. we're like a Flip on the radar. Yeah, and 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 it and it was a successful fair. It was um, not not just in terms of um, the the people that came, but it actually it, it did something that fairs uh, rarely do, and it finished uh, nearly in the black. That's great, and I mean, and it it physically transformed Spokane's downtown, obviously, by rerouting those railroad tracks and opening the river up to, to these spectacular views that are still there today. Did it also, I, I find with the with the 62 World's Fair here in Seattle, um, it gave this sort of sense of civic confidence that let a lot of other things get tackled, whether it was um, 
you know, acquiring more parks or building the kingdom or um, mm-hmm. didn't work with, with uh, mass transit, heavy rail, unfortunately, uh, 55 yeah. years ago. But it kind of gave this sense of, you know, this can-do spirit. So we got our major league teams and everything. Was there a similar kind of a can-do spirit after the fair that let uh, civic people uh, kind of tackle other kind of longstanding or intractable issues? I think there there was. Um, I think um, it it gave um, people a kind of confidence that they that they didn't have before, um, nice. and not just confidence in in doing something spectacular, but confidence in the value of doing the ordinary. Even nice like put. we had during we had during um, Expo um, the Folk Life Festival. And um, that that folk life festival um, featured the the crafts of, of people in the community or in near, uh, nearby states, and um, it showed it, it showed the kind of value for um, for that part of our community as well. Mm-hmm. As well. All but right. you're absolutely right. It did, it did put wind in the sail of, of uh, Spokane as well as Seattle. Very nice. All right. Well, David Ellis Evans, we're about out of time for this edition of Cascade of History, but I'd love to have you back and talk about other aspects of the fair and other aspects of the design and transforming Spokane because we, we love Spokane and we love, we love talking about that World's Fair because it's coming up on a big 50th anniversary. But David Ellis Evans, thanks for joining us tonight on Cascade of History. All right. Well, uh, we're coming to the end of another voyage of the mighty Columbia here on the Cascade of History, the only live radio show about Northwest history, news and stories, people around the Northwest. Um, coming up next week, first of all, I want to thank um, Ted Van Dyke. I want to thank Ken Zick and thank David Ellis Evans for joining us live on the show tonight. Um, these live conversations, the highlight of my week. It's a great way to kind of finish up the weekend and start off the, the week ahead with this, this kind of program. For me personally, I hope you enjoy it too because it's, it's fun for me. And next week, it's going to be Sunday, December 4th. If you're within the sound of my voice, either on the radio or streaming at space101fm.org, get in the car and drive here. We'll, come, we'll be live at the Burgermaster near University Village, Cascade of History's first and perhaps only ever and last live remote broadcast. I'm Felix Bunnell on Space 101 FM with Cascade of History. Have a good week, and we'll see you next Sunday night at Burgermaster University Village. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it, that's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.